You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 15, Getting Biblical, or Dracula 2000. Or Dracula 2001, if you lived in the UK. Or, what the hell did I just watch, Kaylee? <laughs> I am so excited for this episode. I just can't wait until we do Van Helsing, if this is what Dracula 2000 was like. Because I know how much you love Van Helsing. Oh, we have a long, proud history. But back to um, Scottish vampires rather than, I guess, Australasian vampires. Hunters. <laughs> I don't know if either of them is something to be especially proud of, <laughs> given the material. <laughs> I'll take it. So seriously, what the hell did I just watch? I think what you watched was a screenwriter who once upon a time had an amazing idea and either put zero thought into it or put a reasonable amount of thought into it and then went through the studio system and had it sliced and diced. Neither option is especially good. But what we have, I think, is a really fascinating mess. One that's mediocre to terrible that I have seen way too many times because I find it bizarrely entertaining. Yeah, it's definitely one of those so bad it's good. Like, I was watching it with much more enjoyment than, say, reading The Historian. Yeah, this was only a couple hours, that's why. <laughs> that That is true. Plus, it was just, even just for the whole, hey, I know that guy from somewhere feeling that was the entire movie. This is really a check-cashing movie. People are here to make money. They're not here to put this on the good side of their resume. You know, Christopher Plummer is not putting this up here with the sound of music. There's a man counting down the years until he wins his Oscar. It's just everyone just sort of shows up in it like it's very hey it's that guy the late 90s edition. Oh this movie is so late 90s early 2000s you can almost smell the Limp biscuit. <laughs> in case you couldn't tell from the title. I think that's an interesting place to start, but before we do, I think we need to actually talk about the plot of this film. Bill's itself is Dracula, but it's actually not an adaptation of the book. It seems to have lost its way part way through. Like it originally presents itself as sort of some sort of sequel where the book was a recounting of what happened, but they changed the ending, where instead of Dracula dying, he was just locked away and now everyone thinks it's fiction. Then it just becomes a remake in the second half. Well, it becomes a remake, but with one notable twist, which we'll get to. But the basic plot of the film is, as we mentioned, Dracula, as it happened in the Bram Stoker book, was a historical event, but at the end of the book, Dracula could not be killed by Van Helsing. So Van Helsing essentially locks him up in the big silver coffin and locks him in his vault, tries to find a way to get rid of him for good. Nothing works. This involves Van Helsing... Essentially stealing some of Dracula's blood taken for leeches and using it to prolong his life so that he will remain the sole carrier of this burden. Cut to 2000 and the coffin gets stolen by the world's stupidest thieves. <laughs> for someone who manages to execute the plan pretty well, I mean, they managed to break into the huge impenetrable vault really quickly. And this is with um, voice recognition, fingerprint recognition, and eyeball recognition technology. Yeah, they went all out, and they didn't take the hint that when 
this massive vault was full of nothing but skulls with pointy teeth and a giant ass coffin that maybe we shouldn't take the coffin, especially since taking the coffin kills two of our men. And neither of them are the black guys. Yeah, I was actually really stunned by that. The world's stupidest thieves steal the coffin. They finally get the coffin open and Gerard Butler comes out. And eats everyone. This is, yeah, this is pre-300, pre-Phantom of the Opera Gerard Butler. We don't really know how bad it's going to get. No offence, Jerry, darling. I root for you, boy. I root for my fellow countrymen, but it's really hard sometimes. Like, at least Carl Urban has dread, you know? New Zealand are okay for rooting for their homeboy there. And hey, he was in, like, you know, Price of Milk and um, Out of the Blue and... And I'm not going to pretend I haven't seen Phantom of the Opera multiple times, even though it's truly abhorrently bad. But there's enough of that. That's a conversation for another time. Jared Butler gets out, kills all the men, takes the woman, who may or may not have been mind-controlled into it. We don't know. We'll get into that later. And the plane crashes in New Orleans, where Van Helsing's estranged daughter, Mary, is living. Mary happens to be full of Dracula's blood, thanks to her dad's leech work. I don't don't know how that works, by the way. (laughs) No, that's never touched on. It's really just a just go with it moment. And Dracula has decided she will be his ideal companion because of this, which feels vaguely incestuous. Again, we don't know how this works. Once again, just go with it. There's going to be so many moments where you just say it. Assume it's implied. Van Helsing goes to start out and dies pretty quickly. Luckily, Johnny Lee Miller is here. And he's wonderful. He commits to this film. Yeah, he, I actually believe. He's an antiques dealer, and you never ever fuck with an antiques dealer, which is easily the best line in the movie. Not even, I don't drink coffee. Oh, I love that moment. That's so bad. I also love, there's a moment where he's attacked by vamped up Omar Epps, and he brings out a cross, and Omar Epps says, sorry, I'm an atheist. And a knife comes out of the cross, and Johnny Lee Miller says, God loves you anyway. It's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we move on. There, beca- there are more brides join the party really, really quickly. Mary finally catches up with Dracula, who has been haunting her dreams for most of her life. And then we find out the big reveal of why Dracula can't be killed, why he doesn't like Christianity, why he's allergic to silver. Why he's a douchebag. Why he's a douchebag. <laughs> And it's because he's literally Judas Iscariot. The whitest Judas Iscariot I've ever seen. And I've seen some pretty white ones. (laughs) We will get to that later. But yes, Jared Butler as Dracula, as Judas Iscariot, as the Antichrist. And this is why he's a vampire, which once again is never touched on. We don't know how he goes from hanging himself in shame to being a vampire. Never touched on. Dick move Jesus and or God. (laughs) God has just got a really bad sense of humour. Oh, you like suffering, eh? Well, he did just destroy... like irony, do you? Well, he did just destroy that art museum thing with a flood, so... Oh, that was so funny! So yes, we find out that Judas Iscariot is still really mad about that whole betraying Jesus thing, which was really his own fault. He's being so passive-aggressive about it. And Mary discovers, I know how to kill you. Let's hang you. And it works. And the film basically ends with Mary realising 
she has to watch over the ashes of Dracula because she doesn't know if he's actually dead or not because we get two sequels. Straight to DVD, obviously. Yeah, there's a very big sequel hook at the end where he's like, I release you from her vampirism. And yet, just like, flash, 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 is she a vampire? Is she a vampire? At the ending. And then there's this like, I'm Mary Van Helsing. And I'm just like... It's very studio-mandated sequel hook, (laughs) isn't it? No wonder, this movie cost $54 million. How much did it bring in? 47. 37. 47. Oh, that's... Not great. But it could be much, much worse. But how did it cost so much? It looks like crap. This is my favourite moment. James Berardinelli, who was the critic for Real Reviews, wrote, Of all the indignities to have been visited upon Dracula during the past century, including being the inspiration for a serial and a Sesame Street character and being lampooned by Mel Brooks, none is more unsettling than what has happened to him in Dracula 2000. <laughs> I don't know, this is before Dario Argento's movie, so... Giant CGI praying mantis. <laughs> In 3D. <laughs> oh, believe me, I am dying for us to do that episode one day when we're both exceptionally drunk. So where do you want to start with this illustrious masterpiece? The Demeter? Yeah, we actually get the Demeter for like a couple minutes because it's and the then it, credits. Yeah, it's obviously not exact to the book because of the it's covered in bodies, rather than just the one body. This is the only bit of the movie for me that has any kind of stylistic flair. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty well done. There were a few things I would have changed. I would have just had a lot of blood on the boat, rather than all the bodies. Still kept the guy... They still have the guy tied to the wheel, and then they have human feet walking away in the sand when it's crashed. I would have had a dog feet that turn into human feet, but that just would have been me. Yeah, but this is just showing that you actually read the book. (laughs) No offence to the screenwriter of this. I feel like he probably got screwed a lot out of this because it's a Weinstein production and they are infamous for slicing and dicing their scripts to the point where Harvey Weinstein has the nickname Harvey Scissorhands. (laughs) Because the idea itself, it's, it's interesting if you try to ignore the cultural context. Because, you know, Dracula is Judas Iscariot. It's really intriguing. But it also buys into a lot of the anti-Semitic rhetoric that has surrounded Judaism from the beginning. If you look at history, particularly depictions of Jewish people, they're always depicted as Judases, as money-grabbing, as treacherous, and as literal blood drinkers. Rumours spread by the clergy during medieval times that Jewish people kidnapped and drank the blood of Christian children. There's the notion of the blood libel, the idea that Jews used blood sacrifice in religious rituals, usually using Christian blood. And that was perpetuated all the way through to the 20th century. If you look at a lot of anti-Jewish propaganda used by the Nazis, there's a lot of blood imagery. So I doubt the screenwriter was thinking about this. Like, I don't think thinking came into this at all. But it's we've talked about this before with our Moth Diaries episode, a lot of the inherent anti-Semitism in the history of vampirism and the way that that image has been used. I feel like their way of mitigating this problem was, how do we fix this? Let's cast the whitest man we know. 
yeah, well, it will work for cheap. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a history of white Jesus and white everybody else. I mean, this movie aren't does have white most Jesus. Films, sorry, aren't most films about Jesus from the mainstream American system made with white people? Well, that's what they expect. Yeah, it's the image, especially... Okay, we're going to get into some potentially treacherous territory here. Um, mostly films made about Jesus tend to fall into... At least in American cinema, you have films that are made for a primarily religious audience, which tends to be white evangelical Christians, you know, the people who go to see Kirk Cameron movies. <laughs> and then you have the more artistic venture. So something like Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which is actually a really beautiful movie. But it's all white people, because it's what is expected. Because that image has perpetuated in particularly evangelical circles for hundreds of years. It buys into a particular kind of politics that they like so that's how you get Jim Caviezel in the Mel Gibson movie, it's how you get Willem Dafoe in The Last Temptation of Christ, it's how you get the fact that they're making a movie about Mary Magdalene and the lead roles of Jesus and Mary are being played by Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara <laughs> who may be the whitest people in Hollywood like literally white, Rooney Mara is so pale yeah, and then you just get the occasional one where they have either a Latino actor playing Jesus or Joseph, like Oscar Isaac in The Nativity Story playing I Joseph. I totally forgot he was in that movie, by Yeah, me. I just looked it up like, it's some Latino guy. Because I only remember that Keisha Castle Hughes is Mary, which was, you know, yeah. Who's the avatar. <laughs> Who's vaguely not white looking? And of a certain age. A Polynesian actress. Yeah, because well, I was thinking about how Cliff Curtis in Risen is playing Jesus. So he finally gets to play a Maori character in um, Fear the Walking Dead, and then back to playing vaguely Middle Eastern guys. <laughs> well, I was thinking about depictions of Judas Iscariot, and the only one I could think of that wasn't white was in the Jesus Christ Superstar film, where he's played by a black guy, which in and of itself is an issue. <laughs> Who is that guy, anyway? Because I've never actually seen Jesus Christ Superstar. That musical is nowhere near as good as many people say it is. But then again, I have a problem with Andrew Lloyd Webber. So... <laughs> really? I never noticed. Carl Anderson. He's very good in it. Although the most recent version of Judas Iscariot they had in the stage production was played by Tim Minchin. The issue as well is they're not just the anti-Semitism combined with the Hollywood expected whitewashing of Middle Eastern characters... It is still a relatively intriguing concept, the idea that uh, Dracula's aversion to silver, which is never explained in the Bram Stoker book, is rooted in his betrayal of Jesus. That's, you know, clearly someone thought about that for a long time. They didn't think the idea to its full potential or conclusion. Or, or maybe they did and we just didn't see it in the movie. Or its problematic elements. Yes. But... Someone, at least, whether it's... I'm not sure if it's been done in other previous movies or not, uh, or books, or if some other person had that idea and it just wasn't as you know infamous as Dracula 2000. But somebody had a thought, and there is a history of tying vampires to important religious figures. I mean, the first vampire being Cain. Yes. First one that comes to mind is Vampire the Masquerade. Well, everything to do with the depiction of Lilith is rooted in, if not necessarily vampirism, but certainly succubi, which is obviously an offshoot of that. The entire idea of the consuming of the body and blood of Christ is basically the backbone of Catholicism. Which they pretty much make blatant in <laughs> this movie. 
and boy, the, does the consumption of the body get full rain here. <laughs> if there's one thing this movie is, it is not subtle. Yes, especially with that ending where Mary not only throws him, you know, off the side of the building with a rope around his neck to hang him, but him releasing her from the burden of vampirism as there is this massive glowing neon cross of Jesus. It ties very heavily back into the book of Dracula and the idea that the the salvation of Lucy in particular, but the salvation of those who have been taken by Dracula, the, the, the weird sisters included, is rooted in uh, Christian salvation. You know, what are the most powerful symbols that repel the vampire? The cross. The, the, the religious element isn't really developed in the book of Dracula, but it's all 1890s. It's a more heavily Christian time. It's just a given that an Irish writer in particular would go that route. And we see more of Mary's kind of struggling with her faith earlier on in the film. She is plagued by these mental images of Dracula, which seem primarily either being stuck in a coffin or being stuck in sexy time. One or the other. As long as it's not combined? Yeah. Unless you're into that, we're not going to judge. But she goes to a priest who's also her friend, played by Nathan Fillion. Like we said, it's one of those that guy movies. And she admits that she's conflicted because she doesn't necessarily know she's strong enough to fight this off and she doesn't know if she really wants to fight it off. And given that her mother, who was a very religious woman, really struggled with this as well, although Mary doesn't entirely know why. Once again, it's one of those interesting elements that the film doesn't see fit to talk about because they've got to play another Marilyn Manson song. And it's also just poor communication kills again. Because if somebody had just told everyone about this... That seems like way too much work. I know. There's a lot of that. That, that to me, is the sign of a bad storytelling, which this movie is full of. But what do you expect from the guy who wrote Hollow Man 2? <laughs> I didn't even know there was a sequel. <laughs> he seems to work exclusively in terms of to DVD sequels of horror films. Because there's Mimic 2... The Prophecy Free, Hellraiser Herald. <laughs> like, you know, get work. You go, you do you. But yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> this is not material that's in especially a dance. No offence to Joel Soisson. <laughs> also, the, the, the priest is really annoyingly unhelpful. Like, I get that he's got some level of confidentiality to go with, but come on, vampires are involved. You think if anyone was going to be useful in a vampire film, it'd be the priest. Yeah, but he's barely in it. Yeah, does anything actually happen to it? Or does he just sort of leave and, you know, go home and wakes up the next morning going, what the hell happened? They just seem to leave that entire thread hanging. <laughs> he doesn't have to, you know, show up and go, I kick ass for the Lord or anything. Oh, he should have. Time for some divine intervention. <laughs> he's also called David. <laughs> Which, in a movie full of religious imagery, is, you know, is pertinent. Because mm. Van Helsing's daughter is called Mary, and his uh, antiques-dealing assistant is called Simon. And his Dracula is called Judas. So apparently Dracula is also the Antichrist. It's not enough for him to be Judas. He's also essentially the Antichrist. And that, because he's positioned as being the alternative to Jesus himself. 
Like I give them a model life too, but I make it fun. There's a couple instances where this is quite clear. Uh, the main one is really the beginning of the story. Simon, who deals in antiques and hunts down rare and precious items for Van Helsing to either sell with his business, although it's not really sure what his business is, um, or he keeps them himself. And in this instance, he keeps it's a crossbow which was designed to shoot silver arrows, which he's, he's going to keep. And there's an inscription on it in Latin which reads, no, Aramaic or Latin? The line says, all fear he who walks beneath the halo of eternal light. Originally, Simon reads the word halo as being crown of eternal light. So, and given that this weapon is clearly intended to kill Dracula because it's shooting silver arrows, if he's walking beneath the halo of eternal light, you know, that that really is very much an image of the Antichrist. Yeah, I don't think it is um, Latin because the words for crown and halo are two very different things. Right, so Aramaic? Uh, didn't look like the Aramaic later in the books. It's probably some other... Oh, wait, no, it's a Slavic dialect. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's a clear sign that he is positioned as being kind of the the metaverse version of Dracula. But without any facial hair. But we then get the scene where Mary basically tells uh, Dracula, you know, Jesus still loves you. Which, for anyone who has a very religious friend, is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> one of my best friends is a very dedicated Christian and he once said to me after he had a few drinks I love you Kaylee but you really need to let Jesus into your life it was a, one of those moments but be, the line that Dracula gives and I think this is very anti-Christ heavy with the imagery is I drink the blood of your children but I give them more than it's just eternal life I give them what they crave most all the pleasure you would deny them forever you made the world in your image now I make it in mine like, th there's no subtlety there. Whether or not they intended that particular image, it's clearly there with all of the awkwardness that it brings given the context. So that is fascinating. And that's one of the reasons that I kind of watch this movie as often as I do. That and it requires negative brain power. It's just there's so many moments of potential. And you kind of... This is one of those films that I want someone to remake. Just someone to get given complete 100% creative control over it. There are some really good ideas in here some of which just fail and some of them never are actually explored but seriously the basic opening with a bunch of thieves unlock you know the sealed evil in a can that is Dracula. <laughs> what you, you've not been a TV shirts. It is true it's true. You know the idea that Dracula couldn't be killed He's been caged forever and ever. Someone unleashes that. There's your basic opening premise. Get slightly smarter thieves than these guys. Yeah. Because their big explanation for this is, hey, if you've got something to hide, why would you hide it in a vault when you can hide it in a coffin? It's like, no. <laughs> no, that's not Yeah, works. I mean, the idea that obviously there was something worth protecting behind all this security. Logic. Because you know... You body thieves then like actually make them grave robbers or something you know it may not work in a contemporary setting but at least that would make some thematic sense and like, like i said i don't think they thought that far up until they actually found um the coffin they were sort of on the right track of well he's got all the security he buys a lot of rich expensive stuff he keeps it 
clearly this is where he's going to keep his best shit. You yeah, they had a great starting point, but once like their friends started dying... <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's take the coffin that is killing us all. Ain't worth it, guys. Very briefly touched upon the Demeter, which is a thing that often gets glossed over. And I think they should just make the Demeter as a horror movie. Shh, we need to do that. The Demeter is sort of, and then there were none, but with Vampire, but with Dracula as the killer, and they're on a boat instead of an island. It's a very basic concept that would translate quite well to an isolationist, horrific, everyone's just slowly peeling out and dying, and then with an unhappy ending to it. And the way that they recreate it in the modern day with it on a cargo plane. Dracula on a plane. Come on. Drake's on a plane. (laughs) I thought that at midnight last night and I'm still not awake. (laughs) There are some modern updates that they try and do. As I said, the Demeter as a cargo plane works. And then there's a horrific plane crash and everything like that. There were some ways that they can update a Dracula story, but then it just goes, fuck it, let's have them have sex on a ceiling. Yeah, I feel like they were going for very surface-level similarities, which is why you get the Bride slash Weird Sisters. There's no other reason for them really to be here other than eye candy. Mm. No offence to all of the women involved, but it is one of those things where... If you were to remove them from the story, nothing would change. The movie initially posits itself as sort of a sequel to a book that lied about its ending, a historical recount that lied about the ending. Once they actually hit New Orleans, let's just do a terrible remake of it because they have the three brides. There's a mention of a Dr. Seward. There's Van Helsing again. It's barely mentioned, by the way. Um... Mary's best friend, played by Vitamin C, is uh, Lucy Westerman. The fact that she's played by Vitamin C. Hey, it's the late 90s, early 2000s, the movie. <laughs> but they didn't Have play... Have you tell it's right. that era? Danny Masterson is in this film. And Jerry Ryan. Jer- Seven of Nine is in this, guys. And Jennifer Esposito. And Shane West. <laughs> See, it is. Hey, it's that guy. The vampire yes. movie. I think even Johnny Lee Miller almost fits in in that aspect, although he has re- received a a much-deserved career resurgence thanks to Elementary. Was he married to Angelina Jolie at this time? Yes, I think he was. Or I think he might have just been divorced by this point in time. So he was the artist formerly known as Mr. L- Angelina Jolie. He was already divorced by this point in time, but, you know. Like, yeah, people knew who he was. <laughs> oh, I forgot he was in Byzantium. There is something interesting I really want to touch upon with the brides, which is their relationship to Dracula. There is an implication they may be mind-controlled, but it is really barely developed. I look at it as really being more, hey, let's see how incredibly alluring this guy is. And to be fair, Jared Butler is so much better when he's not talking. That can be said about a lot of men. Yeah, Henry Cavill. Which is just just like there's a list of men forming in my head. It's actually most of them. It's also worth pointing out, Dracula does not talk much in this. Much of a communicator. Is this because they had to hide the accent? If you watch the not deleted scenes, the behind the scenes stuff on the DVD, there are moments where he slips and you hear just how... Well, he's not Glaswegian, but he's from near Glasgow. He's from Paisley. And it's great. The scene where he shoots up out of the water... 
they shout cut and all you hear him go is, oh for fuck's sake! <laughs> I think I'm so much better offset than I do onset. Just think how much better Phantom of the Opera would have been if he didn't sing and he just talked as he normally did. I was trying to figure out, is Dracula in this story a villain? Is he an anti-hero? Is he kind of the Byronic hero in a way? I think he, they're going more for sympathetic anti-hero than anything else. Like, the idea of being sort of ripped from your faith is portrayed as reasonably sympathetic, except for that whole trying to kill people thing, which seems to be a problem. Like, you do. And as a concept for a lot of... Uh, it is a sort of something you'd imagine a lot of vampires would struggle with. Imagine, it's you know, being devoutly the- religious and then suddenly your entire religion is yeah. opposed to you. But it's one of the more explicitly religious takes on the story we've read. I mean, even Anne Rice didn't get that wildly religious until, like, Memnoch the Devil. So in that aspect, once it's fascinating, but I feel like the Weinsteins were like, tone down the Jesus stuff. <laughs> Cut it out. Well, knowing Harvey, he was probably yelling it from the rooftops. <laughs> Allegedly. But like we said, it's a book full, it's a film full of great ideas that are horrendously executed. But with the brides, his attraction is basically exclusively physical because Lucy, Mary's flatmate, housemate, Really lovely house, by the way. Like, she may not talk to Van Helsing much, but he seems to be paying for really nice digs. Well, I don't... they inherited it from the mother, so... Yeah, I was, but still, like, property in New Orleans, and I'm guessing, and they seem to be in the French Quarter, I'm guessing it ain't cheap. So, well done on that front, Mary. But Dracula goes to visit Mary in her workplace, which is Virgin Megastore. Thank you. And meets Lucy, played by Vitamin C. And basically she's like, Mary's not here. Do you want to come back to our place? And she's, like, every woman in that place is, like, arching their back towards him. (laughs) Just hands on hip, basically falling over him. They want the D, and in this case, D means Dracula. (laughs) Oh, they want the D hard. They want all the D. (laughs) So he goes back with them. She asks, do you want coffee? And he says, I don't drink. I never drink coffee. He's probably like, what's coffee? And then they almost immediately start fucking. And she doesn't seem to notice that they're like floating on the ceiling at one point. Which is probably testament to his skills that he can keep her that distracted. Well, I'm guessing there wasn't much else to do in that coffin but practice autopilot. <laughs> but the idea of becoming a vampire, we see it seems to be something inherently sexual when Jennifer Esposito's character Selena is found undead by the authorities including Dr. Seward and she basically sways back and forth in her cell as they watch her and the way she talks about being reborn she basically talks about it like it's the greatest orgasm she's ever had and she basically is having that orgasm right then yes and she talks about the She makes a comment about how her new skills allow her to essentially see the erection of one of the doctors who's watching her. Through two-way... Through a two-way mirror. <laughs> From what we see of Jerry Ryan's character, who's called Valerie, she's a, a news reporter, and she's reporting on the crashed plane that contains Dracula. 
they seem to have it's implied that they have hired her as their newsreader because she's hot and she wears low-cut tops yeah this is things she's like okay the tits in the shot and then the cameraman very dutifully says it's a story that matters see that's another sequence that i actually really liked is um I think it's the most visually arresting part outside of the Demeter. The cameraman, Shane West, is doing the shot and she's trying to, you know, get her thing. She keeps flubbing her lines, but not because they're terribly punny and make comments about how she's hot and the audience wants to do her. No, it's the regular lines about the plane or whatever (laughs) that she can't bring herself to say. And then suddenly she's sort of almost pinned in place and starting to bleed and then he lowers the camera and you can see Dracula because he's not showing up on modern technology, apparently. Is that the shot that cost $54 million, or was it all the wire work as they clamber across the walls? Well, Nobody seems the... wants to walk in this movie once they become a vampire. They all want to slide across vertical surfaces. Or jump up um, to the second floor. or Exactly. See, it's again one of those, hey, they've got a great concept, but they don't know where to go with it. Or it's just a... It's a film of moments, but with those three women, there's Selena, there's Valerie, and there's Lucy. Basically, the moment they are turned into vampires, they become like extras in a Rihanna video. They're there to be sexy. Yeah, and be jealous of Mary, because women be bitches, am I right? (laughs) Well, actually, that's not entirely true, because the relationship that the three of them have seems pretty... Bros. They're like lady bros. <laughs> but the way they talk is almost exclusively like they're Mae West. There's a scene where, at the end, where Mary has tricked them into believing she's bitten Simon, and when it. They, they, actually, she hasn't. One of them says, Bitch is faking it. <laughs> so, to me, this is one of those examples of when men don't get women in fiction. <laughs> Like, we've seen this today, if you've seen the way David Ayers has been talking about Harley Quinn in the Suicide Squad movie, don't get me started. But a lot of this here is, what function do the brides, or as they will probably refer to these these guys, even though they refer to as his sisters in the book, what function do they serve in the story? Boobs. Boobs. Basically, in the book, they're, they're actually much more interesting in that. There's a more sort of antagonistic, antagonistic relationship with Dracula. Possibly you know, they push this, back this. against him. They basically accuse him of being a heartless douchebag at one point. But there's still that dependence on him. They need him to feed. Children rebelling against the father. Exactly. And we don't get that here. We just instantly get, oh man, this. well for Lucy, I think she's the only one who seems to have had sex with him. <laughs> but the rest seem to have found their experience with him as being akin to sex. What else they're getting out of this? I'm guessing, well, when Omar Epps wakes up as being a vampire, he's, the first thing he says is, this is better than money. I'm not going to argue with him on that point. <laughs> because, you know, what's the point of money if you're going to die? True. He can live forever and Jennifer Esposito is his girlfriend. So, you know, go him. Plus he can climb But he doesn't seem to mind that much when she kind of disappears. Well, he's too busy getting eye-stabbed. And, and then still... following Johnny Lee Miller around to try and get revenge and not. Yeah, he's after Johnny Lee Miller because Simon was interested in Selena. So it's basically, get your hands off my girl, except Selena can totally do that herself now. See, again, this is that's one of the things that gets dropped that gets really anno- annoying. 
imagine these amazing thieves who now become vampires. Well, I would have. I think it would have been interesting if we'd gotten to see more of them with Dracula instead of just the women, because the implication we seem to get here is they were turned by accident. She was deliberate. He actively reaches out for her, whereas for the the men, it seems to be more an issue of sustenance, and then the end result is that they're lying undead in body bags in a yeah. community hall. That's just because he's more of a plaguer than a other type of um, vampire, which are turning as more deliberate. Which is interesting. The cast aside, because they're men, they're not important because they're men. <laughs> yeah, but then what importance do the women have beyond exactly. the sexualizing? Except for Mary, who she seems to actually want some kind of companionship with. But even then, it's not really touched on much. Mm. Because the only images we really get of them are together, are, you know, one's embracing. And the only thing binding him to her is the fact that there are some leeches that her dad stole over time and they happen to be in her because of genetics. It's about an accident of birth rather than anything else. Everything seems to be about accident and circumstance, but it's never really touched on at all. Which would be a fascinating thing, just, you know, all this pile-up of accidents and death and wrong place and wrong time, but that's not the movie that they're making. I don't know what movie they're actually making. Well, I think what they're making is a movie for the MTV generation. And now... But that's it's... it's already such a dated film. In a way that a lot of other films from that year are not. And I think one of the reasons it is dated as badly as it has is because it's trying so hard to be what it thinks cool is at that point in time. And that immediately dates it. It's the John Green of 90s vampire movies. <laughs> Let's look at the soundtrack to this thing. <laughs> it's... Disturbed, Slayer, System of a Down, Marlon Manson, Lincoln Park. Park. It's 1999, the movie. Yeah, but there was this period in culture where the sign of counterculture was a particular kind of rock music, new metal, basically. I mean, we we kind of forget, but once upon a time, Marlon Manson was genuinely a shocking performer, and so were people like you know, bands like System of a Down and Slayer. People were generally having a you know a moral panic about these musicians. So if you want your material to be really cool, but so cool that it doesn't care that it's cool, you go for this. And this isn't even the first vamp. Well, it is actually the first vampire movie, just but it wasn't the only one because a couple years later we get the really terrible Queen of the Damned movie. And in that movie, as with the book, Lestat is a rock star. But in the book, he's supposed to be like Jim Morrison. Here, he's like Corn. <laughs> Actually, the music <laughs> is written by the guy from Corn, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. It I... is, I believe it is. So mm. you've instantly dated this in a very specific way. And also because all of the people in the film, are, spo except for Van Helsing, are of a very specific age. They're all... 18 to the 26, 27, maybe? Uh, like, they're not supposed to look... They're supposed to be, like, Generation X, you know? The background sequences are all full of um, just background characters. Like, there's a guy, he's walk as Dracula's walking past this club and he's getting distracted by strippers. There's a guy being led around, 
by his girlfriend and he's on a leash. He's shitless, she's in leather, and uh, he's on a leash. But it's Mardi Gras because it's always Mardi Gras in New Orleans if you watch the movies. <laughs> it's like nothing else happens. True Blood is the only TV show I can think of set in that era, except for Tremé, where it's not always Mardi Gras. Is there ever Mardi Gras in True Blood? There must be at some point. What's like vampire orgy version of Mardi Gras? A day ending in Y. Oh man, the inevitable True Blood episode of the show is going to be. <laughs> it's going to be like serial. We're just going to go on for episode after episode. Well, we'll talk about it next month. So you, you've clearly got a piece of material that is aiming to appeal to that generation. You see it in the casting, you know, hey, it's that guy from that 70s show. Hey, it's that woman who was on that magazine cover. Hey, it's good looking people of an age that you would like. And this is a movie that came out uh, just before Christmas, 2000. You know, you're on your break from school. Let's go see a movie with the friends, that kind of thing. Because when was that Vitamin C song that came out? 2000. So yeah, it's... So like, people actually know who she is. No offence, Vitamin C. But if you want a vampire movie that has aged better, maybe don't go for one that's going for a contemporary setting. I think it's something that kind of goes with the material. But it also has the effects of a movie from the late 90s, early 2000s, where they haven't quite got it down yet. So, like, it looks PlayStation 1 cutscene-y more than anything else. And it's it's easy to be distracted by, especially when there isn't much else going on on screen. I also feel like the setting in New Orleans is part of this, because it's like, hmm, what's a vampire place? Hmm, where did Anne Rice set all those... We need to take it to America so we have a reason for all the Americans in this movie. Yes. I know. I mean, I guess it feels like more of an organic setting than, like, New York. Vampires in New York just always seems really kind of cheesy to me. They've just gone to the first place that they landed and were like, eh. I mean, but New Orleans has a fascinating history with Louisiana spiritualism, with voodoo with ties to Catholicism, um, immigration from particularly France, um, the history of slavery. We talked a lot about this in our interview with the Vampire episode, if you're interested. Download it now on iTunes. But it's like a lot of the decisions in this film, the, the setting here feels like more of an aesthetic choice. I feel like they probably got pretty good grants to film in New Orleans, but maybe not much else. They needed something that recognisable, has a history of vampires, would give something a good aesthetic, plus have a lot of religious things nearby. I mean, it's a very Catholic city as well, so I feel like, you know, where is there a lot of churches nearby? But you don't really see Dracula being repelled that much, considering he is supposed to be so offended and allergic to images of God and Christianity. He's walking around New Orleans and seems okay with it. Yeah, he's more concerned about, what was this TV thing? Wow, yeah. there's a lot of tits on this thing. <laughs> I know, it's like, wow, moving images, wow, moving images of tits. Again, storyline that should have been the Dracula wakes up in the modern day, doesn't have a panic attack at what's going on. Huh, these moving, ho these horseless chariots are interesting. And wow, look at the moving pictures. And everybody is naked. I so like So what this, this movie place. needed was a what we do in the shadows moment. <laughs> well, YouTube wasn't around, so we couldn't go Google uh, YouTube videos of sunrises. Dial up looking for things. <laughs> what is that infernal noise? Oh, that's just AOL. Yeah, give it a couple minutes. 
he calls the Bible propaganda, and yet when pages of it are chucked at him, they burn up. Yeah, that was interesting to me. I don't believe this thing is all lies. Oh shit, it burns. I don't believe in sulfuric acid. I don't believe in measles. But you can see the moments where the film clearly thought, or the screenwriter clearly thought, well, let's go into some of those elements of the story that we don't really get a lot of. Because there's a moment where Simon and Mary are trying to discuss, you know, what is he repelled by? And she mentions silver, and he says, why? It's not explicitly Christian. Yeah, somebody... So there is that moment of like, hey, I've got an idea. And then it just falls over. Somebody behind this movie tried to have some ideas, or at least had some basic understanding of vampire fiction and vampire lore. Because as mentioned, the sequel goes into the compulsive need to count. Ah, ah, ah. You enjoyed that, didn't you? So, no vampire movie, especially one so edgy and down with the kids as Dracula 2000, is going to be without sex. Either in seduction, or violence, or whatever the hell is happening in this movie. Apparently it happens on the ceiling, and it is amazing. That's what you're supposed to get from the scene. It's like, oh, they're on the ceiling, but man, they look like they're having fun. Yeah, she seems to be enjoying it until, you know, the death. But I feel like that's the most appealing aspect to that kind of audience. But this is, you know, this is a pre-Twilight age. It's kind of a a stopgap moment in time for for vampire stories. Because we're past Bram Stoker's Dracula and Interview with a Vampire. This is the same year that Shadow of the Vampire comes out, but that is intended more as a kind of satire of the film industry and particularly interesting metatextual take on Nosferatu. It's not really a vampire movie in that way. Yeah, this is the middle Buffy period. But we won't get you know, adult and sexy and things like that. So you have Van Helsing will come 2004, Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen will come around the same time. It's not He's not really as pervasive a character. Blade comes out around this time possibly? Blade, the original was 1998 and then the sequels were after that, obviously. Well, Blade 2 is a really interesting film. That's Guillermo del Toro. And that's 2002. So this is in between those two films. And Blade made a lot of money. People forget that. But that was a money spinner. Before superhero comic book adaptations really were guaranteed money makers. So this is clearly an era where there's not much going on in the vampire canon. So there's also this, you know, growing Generation X audience who have money to spend. What was the biggest film of 2000? Gladiator. Yeah, there you go. It's pre-blockbuster era, but we're beginning to get into that era. You know, obviously, Gladiator is a was a big movie, and it's also better than people remember it. Yeah, but it's also the year that X Men starts. Oh yes. So Mission oh. Impossible 2 is the highest grossing film of 2000. There's Gladiators in there, X-Men's the ninth. Think about that. It made just um, just over half of what Mission Impossible 2 made. You wouldn't get that early with a superhero movie so much these days. This is uh, post... what do you call it? Scream. It's, it's post-Scream. It's self-aware horror. This is the early beginnings of the self-aware edgy horror. Which in and of itself is really interesting. Because you have this era where it's not so much let's be scared, it's let's understand why we're scared and maybe get a few thrills along the way. People forget just how big a deal Scream was. And Dracula 2000, produced by Wes Craven, this is the height of Craven power. 
this is a time where that that name carried some clout. Rest in peace, Wes Craven. But there was also a period where you know he couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. Because this is the same year as Scream Three. So it's powerful, but it's still it's waning a little bit. How much money did that movie make? Hundred sixty-one million on a budget of forty. Right. So it's still it's still making money. It's not getting as much critical acclaim, but it's still making cash hand over fist. Well, the original Scream had a budget of fifteen million, but earned one hundred seventy-three million, and it does make sense that the sequels would have a bit more of a budget. Well, the third one anyway, because the first two were seventeen and twenty-four million. And yet, those movies look so much less cheap than this one. Two thousand special effects do that, and you know, Gerard Butler generally does that. Oh, bless. I mean, we we love Gerard Butler. We do. We genuinely do. I mean, he's no Alexander Skarsgård, but. We'd still, you know, go out to a pub with him, join a quiz team or something. I don't know. I hear whenever he's in Paisley, he will buy people around. We talked about remakes a lot with Fright Night and how that was a successful remake. I think you could probably cannibalize Dracula 2000 and get some good ideas back out of it. I wouldn't do a, a complete remake a la everything. But there's definitely something interesting in here if you go rifling through the pockets. Yeah, I actually think the idea would work better if you didn't make it a contemporary setting. Maybe set it a generation after the original era. So maybe set it the 1920s. So you have Dracula maybe coming... No, um, you have Van Helsing maybe coming towards the end of his life. Maybe he's tried to prolong his life with the leeches and it hasn't worked, but he's still passed on something to his daughter. Or maybe his daughter was... his wife was attacked and daughter was born with it something like that you know like blade <laughs> um just quincy yeah have you know what well, quincy's kid that would be cool well quincy um, was born post whatever happened to mina that would be really interesting and i know some and you could call you could have her be a woman if you wanted cynthia like smith's vampire series has a heroine called quincy it's like the whole dogma thing you know they had quincy but surely they can have other kids they didn't just have so, sex the one time to make Quincy. Because they, <laughs> they clearly were actually in love. So that would be, there you go, that would be a really interesting way to go. Why not have it be Mina and Jonathan's kid? They haven't been able to kill Dracula. He's still in his coffin. Maybe it's their job to watch. Or maybe it's Van Helsing's job to watch and Mina and Jonathan have decided to get the fuck out of there and go to America. Maybe they've gone to New Orleans or maybe they've gone to Texas where Mor the Morris family is. Maybe they've gone to New York. Maybe they've gone to California. There's a you know big movement of migration towards there in the late 1910s, early 1920s as the film industry comes in. I'm really just spinning this off the top of my head right now, but I'm a total genius and it sounds awesome. You could even bring in the whole Bram Stoker actually wrote the book, but with some vague name changes. It's sort of like heavily inspired by these people I know, like so many other writers. You have to have it so that the book has come out and you know this is the 20s, it's wildly popular, they're getting ready to make the the Nosferatu movie. Maybe there's just a lot of like fang bangers or vampire hunters or <laughs> wannabe fang girls who go looking for the grave and find him and he wakens and he decides to go off and look for Quincy. That's a really cool idea. There is so much potential with these sort of stories. The end of the book is Quincy being told, you know, how brave his parents were and the brave guy he was named after. What if he grew up just thinking this was a story? It's really interesting. There was some some real guy, and then Bram Stoker or whatever was published as a you know he decided well let's make the sexier and add vampires. Thought it was the inspired he his parents were the inspired by thing. Kate Beckett, Nikki Heat. Since we're talking about Nathan Fillion, 
I mean, I'm all for more intertextual adaptations. I find them really fascinating. So there, there's a lot of potential here. I say this about every Dracula. There's a lot of potential for the material, for the ways you want to take it, for what you want it to stand in for. You know, you really should go wild. Why not? You've got all of the wiggle room here, especially since it's public domain. Hurrah. Or you could make it about Carmilla. We need more Carmillas in general. You could even do this idea with, say, Carmilla, because Laura's obviously lives to a certain age. She's written her diary. She's written her story. It's been presented as the case notes of Dr. Hesalius. So you could have a sort of a generations of or degrees of people who've gone through and read things as medical texts or the ravings of a crazy woman or and then finding the layers of what has just been changed through the degrees. So you've got someone studying the case alias and the story of Carmilla is one of the cases in there. What has changed different publications and translations and things like We really just support more Carmilla adaptations in general. But if you want to come, even if you just wanted to do like a cheap cash in Dracula movie for that era, for the, the funky fresh kids of the noughties, just commit to full camp. Like one of the reasons I love Van Helsing is just because Richard Roxburgh is bringing it. You can smell the bacon. The ham is off the wall. Go for it. Jared Butler's Dracula is really quite staid and quiet and non-responsive. He's not having fun. I do have to ask, because I've seen this movie many times and I was really excited for you to watch it. Did you actually like it and would you recommend it? Not the worst thing I've ever seen. Not the best. There, as I said, there were some things I really liked and which had been explored more. I enjoyed seeing all those people I haven't seen in things for a while. I enjoyed looking up who those people were once I was like, I know that guy from somewhere, I know that guy from somewhere. And it turns out he was in a couple of episodes of Charmed. I don't know if I'd watch it again because there are better Dracula films and other Dracula films I need to watch. But I do not consider those, you know, two hours wasted. I imagine if you had a lot of beer and a lot of friends, a lot of pizza and a lot of friends, this would be a good one. Like if we lived on the same continent and managed to get together like a blood-sucking feminist fan club movie night, this would be a pretty good fun one. I will say this for me is really good bad movie night. There are so many bad Dracula films, and I think this is one of the ones with the most interesting glimmers of potential behind it. Yeah, makes me wonder what the original script and everything was like before the usual suspects got hold of it. It's certainly one that's rife with ideas. Use it as a do, do not, and try when it comes to making your own Dracula modernization. And um, maybe put in a better soundtrack. Nobody needs to hear that amount of Limp biscuit. <laughs> I unironically like Linkin Park, but just no Limp Bizkit or Slayer. <laughs> Anything else we have to say? I would love to hear what everyone else says. I'm curious to see these straight-to-DVD sequels, just if nothing else, because I'm a masochistic completist with well, bad stuff like this. We've had people say that they're not actually that bad, and it'd be interesting to see if they had less control, well, less stuff imposed on them by the people in charge, which allowed them to explore more traditional vampire things. Because, I mean, I can't imagine many big blockbusters sort of having the counting of um, seats. We may check them out at some point in the future, but we have a lot of Dracula to get through, so don't wait. Okay, so is that this for this episode? That's us. So what are we doing next month, Kaylee? I'm not at all excited. We've decided to complete the trifecta of vampire musicals, particularly Broadway-bound, but we are going to touch on a couple more. So if you want to join us in this madness, and why wouldn't you, 
check out the Frank Wildhorn Dracula musical. Check out Lestat the musical. And the music by Bernie Tolbin and Elton John. And we'll sort of just sort of touch upon and mention some other Dracula musicals, other vampire musicals, just as sort of a historical context thing. And we'll of course be talking about how excited we are for the True Blood musical. Yes. That's if you amazing. have a vampire musical to recommend to us, and it is in English or has English subtitles, because we know there are a number, there's a French one, there's, there's a, I believe, a Czech a- one. There's another Eastern European one, and we have seen snippets of them, but they didn't have English subtitles, and we don't want to screw that up. There's things like the Chamber Musical of Dracula, a few other Draculas. We won't be doing the Buffy episode, Once More With Feeling, because Buffy is a big thing. Plus, if you want really good um, Buffy um, recaps and discussion, go to Jenny Trout's blog. She does it Yeah, she's better. much better at that stuff than we are. She she does it way better than us. Plus she's going through each episode. If we did Buffy as an episode, it would just be like in episode one, Angel's hair is hilarious. Done. Because there's a lot of episodes. But join us for that. We will have fun, I think. We will be musical dorks. And we will only mention Drew Sarek seven or eight times. Thank you for listening to yet another rambly episode of the Bloodsucking Feminists. You can find us on our website, bloodsuckingfeminists.com, on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem, email us your fang mail at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminists.com. That's fangmail with a G because we are terrible and puns are amazing. We're also on Facebook, around about the place. Just Google Bloodsucking Feminists. You'll find us. If you really like us, do us a big favour, leave a review on iTunes. And by review, we mean decent stuff, not angry hate mail about how we hate men. I don't think that's happened on iTunes yet, but it's happened elsewhere. So we're obviously doing our job right. Anything else you'd like to say, Kelly? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Well, we'll see you next time very, very excitedly. Bye.